it, Hebrews chapter 2. When I was, when I was with you this last year, I had, I'd shared a message. I think it ended up like on YouTube uh, saying hindsight is 2020, uh, which was fine. I mean, it, you know, it really was, I think, about feeding God. Uh, but that kind of, I think, stuck out to some folks. And what's interesting is that was before COVID. And everybody, of course, was prophesying that, you know, 2020 vision, and this is going to be a year of vision. And I said, I, I don't see it as a year of, like, what's going to take place, vision of the future. But hindsight is 2020. The greatest revelation coming to the church is not what God is going to do, but what he's already done. But then I was also asked by a lot of people, because it was 2020, what is God saying over the next decade? We started a new decade, and I just kept hearing the Holy Spirit say something to me that I'm going to share with you today that has been a revolution, a little part of it has been a revolutionary thing that connected a bunch of dots for me of questions that I had, because I really believe that the 20th century was all about the Holy Spirit. That is where the whole Pentecostal charismatic move came into the body of Christ, grew the fastest growing movement all around the world. The gifts of the Spirit were restored. There was a refocus on the Holy Spirit and the gifts. The first two decades of the new millennium, it was a refocus on Jesus again, which is why the message of grace came to the forefront, because grace is not a thing, it's a person. And all of a sudden, people were, were getting crystal-centered. They were putting Jesus back at the center again. And, and we're not going to leave the Holy Spirit behind, nor is Jesus not going to still be at the center. But I believe the next few decades is going to be a revelation of Abba. That now it's time for us to have a real revelation of the Father. We've been singing about it. We sing about this is Father's house. We sing he's a good, good Father. But I'm not convinced a lot of people believe he really is. Because to a lot of people, Jesus is awesome, but they're not really sure about his dad because of what they've been taught a lot of times in church. Because it's almost like we taught Jesus and the Father were totally different from each other because the Father was this guy in the Old Testament who was angry and wrathful and always in a bad mood. And then Jesus came and turned his frown upside down, and Jesus was the Father's Prozac, and Daddy's now in a good mood. But, but he's only in a good mood for a couple thousand years because when, he, when, he, you know, when, when him and Jesus come back someday, he's going to slaughter everybody. So it's like Rambo's coming back. Uh, so you know, it, that, that kind of messes this whole idea. And so tonight, we're going we're gonna to hit something I believe is very important. Uh, tonight, we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, there's no darkness in God. If you've ever had any idea at all, I, I was raised that God did have a dark side. That God, you know, God was good and God was loving and kind, but you know He was also, you know, yeah, better watch out because He gets in a bad mood and and He's a certain way. And we're gonna we're gonna actually put that to rest tonight because uh, Holy Spirit said something to me 12 years ago, and then I'm gonna get right into this. He said everywhere you go from now on. This was a dozen years ago. He said I want you to do two things. Number one, I want you to remove from the church all fear-based doctrine. Because love and fear cannot coexist. Perfect love removes all fear. Then the opposite is true. Fear then can remove love. And if you've been raised in fear, you cannot be intimate with someone you're terrified of. It's absolutely impossible to feel safe in the presence of someone you're terrified of. It just doesn't work. Period. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is fear. People hate because of fear. Period. 
So anything that's producing fear, any doctrine that produces fear, any ideas about God, and I'm not talking about what Hebrews calls the spirit of the fear of the Lord, which is all about honor, awe, and respect. We should have an awe and respect for God, but never be terrified of your father. If a child is terrified of their parents, something is dysfunctional in the family. If my wife would have told me when I went away on a trip and when I came home and the garage door went up and my kids would have run to the room and hid in the closet because daddy was home, it would have tore me to pieces. Instead, they're jumping up and down, daddy's home, daddy's home. But that's how a lot of people feel many times about God because they've had, they've had him misrepresented in their own homes by fathers that were either not there or fathers that made them run to the room and hide because daddy a lot of times was in a bad mood. And not only to remove fear, but to repaint Father God to the church. To actually let them know that he's better than they ever thought. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about that. Hebrews 2. And I'm going to start in verse number 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that, uh, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So who all did he die for? Everyone. Kind of messes with you if you're ever Calvinist. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now go down to verse number 14. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death... He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. I think think you need to read that again. I mean, because I've been wondering who all these Christians have been fighting all the time. Because the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus didn't just destroy death. He destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That means the devil's been destroyed, defeated, disannulled rendered powerless, some translations say. Now, that doesn't mean that demonic thought patterns that have been handed down generationally still on around. It doesn't mean that satanic ideas still on around, but this, this person that's supposedly fighting the church, anyway, y'all don't want to help me at all. He said, well, Lord, the devil was after me this last week. I highly doubt it because according to Hebrews chapter 2, he defeated and destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and then watch this, and release those who through the fear of death were all of their lifetime subject to bondage or slavery. Now that, that jumped off the page at me this past year because, you know, this passage in Hebrews 2, I've, I've preached the first part of it here. Uh, um, in some forms, once or twice, your pastor just did a whole series on really bringing sons to glory, honor, value, worth, approval, that Jesus was amazing at preaching not to the sin in people, but preaching to the son in them, exposing who they really were. Do you know that the word for sin, hamartia in the Greek, is actually a word when you go back to its root form that actually deals with like mistaken identity. That literally the, the whole mess that this world got in is because there was a deceiver that deceived man into believing something about themselves that wasn't true. 
And so Jesus came to fix all of that. He came, according to Hebrews, not only to bring many sons to glory, he also came to destroy the devil. According to other passages, he came to destroy also the works of the devil. He came to forgive us for our sins. He came to remove the veil. There's all kinds of reasons. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. There's all kinds of things that Jesus came for. He didn't come for just one or two or three things. There's actually many things that he came to do and to undo and to outdo and overdo. But in, in this passage especially, uh, man, it jumped off the page at me when it said he not only defeated him who had the power of death, but he also came to release all of those who all of their life were slaves to the fear of death. Now, if that doesn't describe the last year that we've lived in, the fear of death has run rampant all over our culture and all over our world. It's like the, the thing that's crazy to me is the early church was known for one thing above everything else. They had no fear of death. Matter of fact, when you actually read about the first hundred years of the church, is they would be in Roman, uh, you know, Roman, uh, you know, big huge citadels and coliseums, and they'd be fed to the lions, and they would shout out to the people around them, "Jesus loves you, and we love you. Jesus forgives you, and we forgive you." And as lions are tearing them to pieces, they were known for singing hymns and singing songs because they had no fear of death. They realized that. Death is an enemy, and death now has been defeated, and you never really die in the first place. My, my father-in-law, we laid him to rest this past week in Chicago. 93, he had just turned 93 years old, been married 70 years, and from March of last year till March of this year, they barely left the house, uh, you know, I mean, just being safe with COVID and everything else, and then in March, they got the vaccine, and then they felt safe to go out, and two weeks ago, they still, even with the vaccine, ended up getting COVID. Within two days, he was in the hospital with COVID pneumonia, and he was on a breathing machine. And uh, the family, of course, we were concerned, and but we know there was something about my dad. It was so amazing. He called my sister-in-law in, and he said, I'm 93. I've lived a long time. I don't feel like fighting. I want to see Jesus. I'm not afraid of death. And he said, I want you to take me off this breathing machine. And if I go, I go. I'm, 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 I'm good to go. But he said, I just want to talk to all my kids and my grandkids and great-grandkids first. So she FaceTimed every one of us. He, had, he said his goodbyes. He spoke a blessing over every child, every grandchild, every great-grandchild. Took out the tube. And, and the next morning, uh, you know, he went to be with Jesus. Had no fear of death whatsoever. But we have a culture that has been overrun right now with the fear of death. And in the midst of it, I mean, this last year, listen, as I travel uh, right now, I mean, I have so many pastors telling me about how many people left the church because, uh, you know, you, you didn't do something that somebody thought they'd do. I, I mean, I mean, I, the fact that people didn't give pastors a break this last year shows me we didn't understand any, any grace. I mean, this past year as a leader, damned if you do, damned if you don't, all right? If you shut the church down, you didn't have any faith. If you don't shut the church down, you're trying to kill people. You know, I mean, it's like if you if you mandate masks, then the anti-mask people were throwing a fit. And if you didn't mandate a mask, the mask people would throw a fit. I mean, it was just absolutely ridiculous, the stuff that people got consumed with. And it all had its root in the fear of death. 
Something that we as Christians should not be afraid of. Now, it doesn't mean that we're stupid. I'm not saying don't wear a mask. And listen, you know, listen, whatever you feel the Holy Spirit is leading you to do, that's not the argument we should even be in. What, what we should be consumed with is this idea that Jesus came to free us from the fear of death. You see, there's a difference between what's called the Western church and the Eastern church. The Eastern church, which is more orthodoxy, they still embrace much of what the first 400 years of the church taught. The Western church embraces more of Augustinian thought, which is post 400 or so. And the difference between the two is the, the Western church, Catholic and Protestant, put a focus on the cross. Because the Western church believes that the problem that Adam brought into the world was a sin problem. And so the Western church focuses on behavior. That's why it's, it's, it's all about sin, sin, sin. When I was growing up, that's all we heard about was sin. So many sermons on the cross. Now, I'm not an either-or person. I tend to always be a both-and. I don't think it's Western or Eastern. I think it's Western and Eastern. But the Eastern church puts more of a focus on the resurrection because they believe that the problem that Adam brought into the world was a death problem and not a sin problem, which is very interesting. That's why in, in the Eastern church, we hear a sermon once a year on the resurrection. Normally Easter Sunday. And a lot of times we don't even do it then. We're still preaching the cross on there. Now that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. Paul said, I, I know nothing but Jesus Christ and I'm crucified. But Paul also said, if there's no resurrection, then why even preach the gospel at all? I think it's interesting that salvation doesn't come from believing in the cross. Salvation comes from believing Jesus was raised from the dead. So it's not an either-or issue. It's a both-and issue. But how you go about it is very different because if you believe the problem is only about behavior, then you deal with the fruit and you never get to the root. And the American church, especially, we've been awesome at preaching to the fruit, man. We're, we're, we're going to get after sin. We're going to get after your behavior. But we never get into why people do what they do. We just focus on what they do. So we focus on their behavior rather than actually dealing with the actual root issue that's causing the behavior in the first place. Are you all still here? Are we doing all right? You see, Hebrews 2, it's talking about two types of people. Both are sons, but one has a slave's mentality, and one has been brought to glory, honor, value, worth, and approval. Now, let me just say this and make it plain. I know your pastor has said it, but maybe someone else also needs to say it in the house. Every human is a child of God. Now, it would shock you how, how, many, how, how many people have absolutely, and especially grace folk for some reason, I don't know what it is about grace folk, have an issue with that. Everybody's not a child of God. They're sons of God and they're sons of the devil. Because First John says, if you still sin, you're a son of the devil. And I'm like, you realize that's like hyperbole because the devil doesn't have a reproductive organ. Right. I could have been a little more raw. I, I was behaving myself. He, 
All right, the devil is not Zeus knocking up Hercules' mom and producing demigods or producing demons. There's not demon seed and godly seed. That, that is metaphorical language. When Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, he wasn't saying you're literally demon seed because every human is created in the image and likeness of God. And according to Ephesians 2, he's the father of us all who is above all, through all, and in all. According to Ephesians 3, he's the the God and Father of every family named in heaven and every family named in earth. According to Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17, speaking to pagans, by the way, he said, in him you live, in him you move, in him you have your being, for we are all God's offspring, genos, children, family, kind, because we all come from one blood. There's not one human that is not a child of God. It doesn't mean that they know they're a child of God, because there's only two types of people on the planet. There's sons who know their sons and they've stepped into that identity and they're walking in a relationship with the father. Then there's sons that are still living in the pig pen because no one ever told them they're sons. And so they're not living like sons. They're living like orphans, even though they're actually sons. Only two type of people on the planet. You see people pull out a verse like Jesus. Did you realize that Adolf Hitler claimed to be a Christian? I don't know if y'all knew that. Claimed to be a follower of Jesus. He turned a whole nation of Christians whole nation of Lutherans, by telling them that verse. He said, Jesus even said to Jews, you are of your father the devil. Jews are demon seed. And because they're demon seed, we can exterminate them. They, they crucified our Savior. See, any time you believe any human is less than the image and likeness of God, all it produces is death. That's the same thing. There were preachers all over America in the 17 and 1800s that actually taught that black people did not have souls and they were demon seed. They were sons of the devil. And because they're sons of the devil, we can rape them, we can kill them, we can do whatever we want them because they don't have any value. Anytime you see any other human as less than valuable as a child of God. That's where wars come in. That's where slavery comes in. It's where all kinds of atrocities have been practiced in the name of God using a scripture. All right, Jesus was not saying they're demon seed. Matter of fact, let, let, let me take this a little bit further and then I'm going to go on. Jesus one day is asked by a bunch of unredeemed, unregenerate, unborn again people because the cross hadn't happened yet. Uh, John, John's disciples taught him how to pray. Would you teach us how to pray? So he tells a bunch of people that were not saved, quote unquote, because the covenant had not been enacted, teach us how to pray. And he said, when you pray, pray our Father, so he told a bunch of people that didn't know they were sons and informed them that they were actually sons. The gospel is not turn or burn. The gospel is not your filthy, rotten, stinking human God can't stand and he wants to fry your behind and so you better hurry up and get in Jesus. I used to preach that God would only smile at you when you were in Christ because once you got in Jesus, he don't smile at you. He smiles at Jesus. He's happy with Jesus. He's not happy with you. He actually can't stand you. Matter of fact, Martin Luther said, all we are is snow-covered dung. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful to know that you were just a piece of poo? And, and all of a sudden, because you accepted Jesus, now you're snow-covered poo, but you're really just poo, even though God created you in his image and likeness, and his love for you is amazing, but he still views you still a certain way, because we took a passage of scripture, and we missed it, and we began to teach that our life is hid from God in Christ, rather than our life is hid with God in Christ. My life is not hid from God. I don't have to hide from him. 
every human is valuable. Every human God sees in his image and his likeness. And then people always bring up 1 John to me, but John says that if you still sin, you're a son of the devil. The problem is every time you see the word devil or Satan, it's not talking about the entity. Uh, Satan, when Jesus turned to Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan, Peter didn't literally become Satan. Uh, the word Satan means, uh, you know, means adversary. So what he was saying was adversarial to the kingdom of God and the purpose of Jesus. And when John says you are a, you're either a son of God or a son of the devil, if you still sin, John later on the chapter later tells us what sin is. He said, sin is transgressing the law. Well, he was speaking to people then under the law. How many know you and I have never been under the law? <laughs> so a son of the devil was a son of law keepers. It was the word devil is accuser. All right. That which was accusing the early church was the law. It was the law keepers. That's all of Paul's sermons. The enemy of the church wasn't Rome. The enemy of the church was religion. It was the Judaizers. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Judaizers. It was the Judaizers that showed up the cities and church stirred up people against Paul and they threw him off of walls and left him for dead and stoned him. I mean, it, it wasn't Romans. As a matter of fact, it wasn't Romans till after, I think, 60 AD or so because Nero decided that when there was a huge fire that it was Christians who said it. And so all of a sudden he turned everybody against Christians. Matter of fact, Rome in the first 40, 50 years of the church thought Christians was a sex cult. Because they were always kissing each other and hugging each other. <laughs> it's true. You actually study it. Rome thought all those Christians were a bunch of nuts. They're just always greeting each other with kisses. And, you know, there, there's some verses in the Bible we don't practice. You all realize that, right? You know, Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. Yeah. I'm good, you know. Fist bump's good, little little hug. This last year, nobody greeting with a kiss. It's like we're taking that verse, we're throwing it out of the Bible. Just... <laughs> Don't, don't want any of that. So if someone walks up to you in church, you're just like, whoa. You're just, I don't know you like that. <laughs> so now in the midst of all this, if there's sons who know their sons and there's sons who are still slaves, where, where did all this come from? Jesus came to do something incredibly powerful. But we start in Genesis 1. Now let me get to this. I'm going to get to the trucks, and then we'll be done, and then I'll pick up some stuff tonight. Genesis 1, as God created everything on this earth, he called himself to animals, to plants, to all the kingdoms of this world. He called himself Elohim. Everybody say Elohim. Elohim is Lord, Master, God, Sovereign. Ruler, It gives a picture of that which is the master and the ruler. And so God calls himself to creation Elohim. But on day six, when he creates mankind, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but he actually calls himself Lord God to Adam. He doesn't just call himself Elohim. He actually, in Hebrew, calls himself Jehovah Elohim. But now Jehovah is a word that is actually not pronounceable. There's actually no vowels in it. It's like J-V-H. It's the Y or Y-W-A, Yiva, you know, Yahweh, uh, Jehovah. It, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a word, or it was actually Yahweh, that Yahweh is this most holy name of God that Jews aren't even allowed to say. And so if you go to your concordance, it's going to say Yahweh or Jehovah Elohim. But 
this last year, someone sent me a little book. It was actually a man in his 70s who wrote out a whole thing for me because I guess seven years ago in Colorado, I prophesied to him and it birthed this book in him. And so he sent me a copy and he said, I'd be honored if you would read it and I'd like your feedback on it. Well, right at the beginning of the book, he had one part of the chapter and I immediately called him and said, could you send me all the sources for this? Because I got a bunch of millennials connected to me and they're always asking me for sources because they don't believe anything you tell them. That's not a bad thing. But this was the crux of it, that Orthodox Judaism for thousands of years have handed down oral traditions and oral laws. When Jesus, or when Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he said, since you were a little child, you were taught the graphe, the scriptures, and the grama, which were the oral traditions. And he goes on to say, for all graphe is inspired of God, in, in that, that famous verse in 2 Timothy. But these traditions that have been passed down, as the Jews have passed down for thousands of years, that God revealed himself to Adam, and he called himself... Not Yahweh Elohim, but Hashem Elohim. Now, what's interesting about that is if you've ever been to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, I've been to several of them. If you're around Jewish people, you hear the word Hashem quite often. I mean, like, you'll hear Hashem, Hashem, I mean, literally all over the place. It's a family name that would be similar to, like, aunt or uncle or mom or dad or brother or sister. It, it, it always deals with family. So when God reveals himself to creation, he's Elohim, he's master, he's king, he's sovereign. But when he creates mankind, he uses different language. He said, I'm not just Lord, king, and master. I'm father, Lord, king, and master. To you, it's different than the rest of creation. Creation is here to serve me, but instead I am here as a father, because it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And this is the interesting part. The first thing that God does after he reveals himself as Hashem Elohim is it says, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. He gives them what's been called the dominion mandate. But what's interesting is this. I remember back in the 90s, my dad had me do a three-week series on Wednesday nights on the seven Hebrew words for praise. And the first time you see the word praise is in Genesis 3. Because the word they're blessed and God blessed them, it's the Hebrew word Barak. And this was way before there was a President Obama. The word Barak actually means to praise, to bless, to bow, to affirm. So the first thing God does with his creation, humanity, is he bows before them he praises them, he blesses them, and he affirms them. Now, in the 90s, when I studied that, I never even used that passage because it felt like blasphemy. There's no way the Creator bowed before creation. Don't you know that we are here to serve the Almighty? All we are are servants and slaves of God, the, the Almighty Master and Lord. And that passage made no sense to me. I said, man, I, that can't mean that. There's got to be something. There's no way God would bow before humanity and bless them, affirm them, and praise them. And then it dawned on me because when Jesus showed up, he said, I'm here 
easier now to get back what was lost in the garden, and it was a mindset of family. And so Jesus showed up, and the last thing he does is he bows before his creation, and he washes their feet. And then it hit me, if God revealed himself as father to Adam and Eve, or to mankind, that's all that Adam means is mankind, then it it would make sense if he was father, because my new little granddaughter that came home in June, we weren't able to go to the hospital this time. We had to wait till she got home. And the moment she got home, I ran over to the house. I got down on my, she was in her little car seat. I got down on my knees. I bowed before her. I began to praise her. I began to bless her. I began to tell her how beautiful she was, how proud Papa was of her. I began to kiss her to pieces. I couldn't stop blessing her and praising her because it's what fathers do with their children. My my six-year-old granddaughter, she she doesn't serve us. She comes busting through our door, and I'm like, hey, Katie, would you go downstairs and grab Papa a root beer? No. <laughs> Two minutes later, Papa, I want some Lucky Charms. Papa, get me one of these. Papa, get me one of those. Papa, I want to watch Disney. Papa, Papa, Papa. We serve her. Like crazy. Why? Because it's the heart of a parent to serve the destiny of their children. Why would we think that Heavenly Father who made us to do that with our kids would be any different when he created humanity? So the first thing God does with humanity as Hashem Elohim is he bows before them, he praises them, he blesses them, he affirms them. What a beautiful picture. But I know when I, when I first saw it, I, it took me two weeks to tell my wife. It felt blasphemous to say that God would do that. Now, it doesn't mean that our kids never serve us. Once they get to a certain age, we teach them how to clean the room and mow the lawn and, and do some chores. But they only serve us because we first serve them. We love him because he... He's the example. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, I say nothing but that which I hear my Father say. I do nothing but that which I hear my Father do. And Jesus showed up and said something powerful. He said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. In other words, Father and I, we're not here to be served. But we're actually here to serve. My children are grown my daughter and son-in-law make more money than I do. But when we go out to eat, guess who normally picks up the bill? Why? Because it's the heart of a parent. Parents are going to serve their kids, not just when they're little. They're, they're grown. They might be 50, 60 years old. That's still my baby. That's still my child. I'm still going to help them every time they get in trouble, every time they need something. Because the heart of a true parent, the heart of a true father, and Abba Father, this amazing Hashem, Elohim, his response to his sons and daughters was, I'm a father and you're my children and this is about a relationship and it's always been about a relationship because it's a relationship between a father and his sons. But then something happened in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. A a deceiver shows up. And the deceiver deceives mankind with two deceptions. Number one, the deceiver showed up and said, has not Elohim said he left off the Hashem? In other words, he got 
man to believe that God wasn't really his father, but God was a master and a sovereign that you had to serve. Someone you had to be a servant and a slave to. And then he says, if, if, if God really liked you, if this Elohim was really for you, then if you eat of this tree, you'd be like God. And they, they should have said, we already are, because they were made in his image and likeness. And so the deception was they deceived, the deceiver deceived mankind into believing he wasn't a son when he was a son. And he began to, te- began to deceive mankind into believing that God was not his father, but a master that you had to serve. And so now listen to this close. When man believed that, from Genesis 4 all the way to John 1, everything you read, tonight we're going to go into this a little more in depth. Everything you read through the Old Testament is written through inspired men but who were writing through a lens of being slaves and not sons. They were writing from a mindset of servants and slaves trying to figure out how to have a relationship with a master, not sons enjoying fellowship with a father. Man, that cleared up a whole lot of stuff to me that's confused me. Because now I begin to realize why John 1.18, John shows up and he says, no man has seen God at any time until Jesus revealed him. That means nobody got God right in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that God didn't inspire men to write it down. It doesn't mean that everything written down there is not important. But they were seeing through a glass darkly. They prophesied in part. They saw in part. They didn't see God clearly. So Jesus shows up and said, let me clear it all up for you. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus' whole message was about a Father. In my Father's house are many rooms. In my Father's kingdom. In my Father's world. In my Father's world. Over and over. When you pray, pray. Our Father. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through the Son. Over and over. All he talked about was this Father. That's why Philip one day says, Show us this Father you're talking about. What are you talking about? Because to them, God wasn't Father. God to them was a master. God was a king, a sovereign, a Lord that you had to bow and serve, not a Father who actually wanted to serve your destiny, who wanted what was best for you. A father who loved you so much that actually chose to come in Christ, God in Christ, to reconcile the world. It was a father not coming to punish us. The cross was not a father punishing a son. The cross was the father and the son consuming all of our lies and misunderstanding. Jesus didn't come to just reveal to us who God was. He came to reveal to us who we also really were. He did not come to just show mankind something about this this God who they were terrified of, but he came to reveal that God was father. In other words, God shifted us as a, a very good friend of mine is writing a book right now, and almost done with, that God is shifting the church from theology, which is a study of God as sovereign Lord and King, to Abbaology, which is seeing God through the lens of a father. I have some spiritual sons who, when they first met me, they were, they were five-point Calvinists. And they wanted to argue scripture with me all the time. And every time they try to argue scripture, I wouldn't argue scripture with them. I'd just say, so how does that doctrine work with you with your kids? 
And they'd always be like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, how does that work? Could you treat your three kids that way? Well, no, but you're okay with God then. You're kinder than God. So you're telling me you're more merciful than the God you say you serve. So you're okay with God doing something to someone that you would never do to someone. And they'd always get angry with me. They're like, well, well, but, but what about this verse? And I'm like, let's just set the verses aside. How does that work in the context of family relationships? Because once you see God through the lens of Father, it changes everything. What it does, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit tonight, it shifts your mind from a judicial view of God to a family view of God. You see, much of the church has been imparted, especially in the West, we have a judicial view of God, mainly because men like Tertullian in the early church, as well as Augustine, Anselm, John Calvin, Martin Luther, the Reformers, many of them were lawyers. And so they viewed Scripture through a legal, judicial lens and not a family concept. And so everything was all about legalities. It was all about prices that were paid. It was all about God being retributive rather than God being restorative. Parents don't punish their children. They correct their children. What's the purpose of a parent giving correction? To restore, to reconcile, to bring back into relationship and back into order. That's actually the heart of God. That's what Jesus actually revealed to us. That's how Jesus treated sinners. That's how Jesus responded to others. When Jesus is being beaten on the cross and spit on and lied about, and he's at his worst place, his response is not, get him, daddy, take them all out. His response is, father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the heart of Abba. Yeah. See, Jesus did not come to change God's mind about us. He came to change our mind about God. He came to show us this is who my father really is to such a degree that first John even tells us that we have an advocate. You know, when, when I was, uh, I remember being, when I was a teenager, young teenager at our home church in Michigan, we did a skit one Sunday and a lot of churches did this there. We had someone sitting in a chair on the platform and they were God and put a big long beard on them because for some reason, you know, God looks like Zeus. And then over here on the right hand, there was Jesus. And Jesus is our heavenly lawyer. He's our, he's our advocate. He's our litigator. And then over here on the left side, and I played the devil for some reason. I don't know why they have me play the devil. Preacher's kid. Said. And, of course, the devil is in heaven constantly lying about you, and he's constantly accusing you to the Father. And then Jesus, our heavenly lawyer, steps in. Anyone ever see this picture before? Jesus, our heavenly lawyer, steps in, and he's like, no, Father, remember what I did, and you can't accuse all of them because they're mine. And we have all this picture. The sad thing is, is that has nothing to do with the new covenant. Because the devil's not been in heaven for a long time. He was cast out a long time ago. Has no access there whatsoever to accuse or say anything to anybody. And you and I, according to 1 John, we do have a heavenly lawyer. We have an advocate. But we have an advocate not with the judge. We have an advocate with the Father. In other words, matter of fact, let me mess with you a little bit. The idea of heavenly Father being a judge at all should be out of our mind. You know why? Because Jesus said, all judgment, the Father's given to the Son. 
all judgment. That means the Father sitting on a throne of judgment doesn't exist. All judgment has been given to the Son. Jesus is the ultimate judge. I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad about that. I'm I'm glad that even if your father is a judge, the father, that there's a reason why judges cannot be sitting judges uh, with a family member. Why? Because normally if it's a family member, it's going to be rigged a little bit because that judge is going to want that that family member to be able to be reconciled or restored and not destroyed and not be punished. There's something in the heart of God. We have an advocate with the father. You and I are not coming into a courtroom. There's a whole teaching over the last few years in the charismatic world about if you need healing and you need prosperity, you go into the courts of heaven and you demand in the courts yourself. The problem is we're not coming into the courtroom anymore. We have an advocate with the Father. We're coming into a living room. Daddy's sitting on a big old lazy boy called Mercy and Grace. And he's saying, climb up in my lap for in no wise will I cast you out. You see, until we change our view about who the Father is, The father is not some ogre. He's not some angry deity that can't stand humanity. And we needed Jesus to change him about what he thought about us. Instead, Jesus came to reveal who he really was. No man had seen God at any time until Jesus revealed him. Maybe that's why the apostle Paul in Romans, and I'll I will stop with this. Maybe that's why Paul said there's something inside of every human that's crying out something. And what's inside of every human is not crying, my God, my God, not even Jesus, Jesus, but Abba, Father. There's something in us that's longing to know the source. When Jesus said, call no man Father, He wasn't saying you can't call your dad father because that would have negated other verses. Paul said, honor your father and your mother. Whoa, wait a minute, we're not supposed to call him father. That's not what it's talking about. The word father, pater in the Greek, means originator or source. What what Jesus was saying is don't call any human your source. Our natural parents and spiritual parents are not a source. They are a resource. They're there to point us. I tell people all the time, my job as a father, naturally and spiritually, is not to be the source for anybody. I, I'm simply the moon. My job is to reflect the sun and as a resource, point them back to the source. To not make people in my image, but to help them understand the image of God that he's placed on the inside of them. God, Jesus came to free us from the fear of death so we're no longer slaves but we step into our sonship because there's this amazing father that wants to have a relationship with his creation he's not anti us Jesus was our example while we were still in sin he died for us Jesus' example his response to all of our mess wasn't running from us but running towards us And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what the Father is like, God is not like, believe it or not, God is not like Elijah said. He's not like Moses said. God's not like Isaiah said. Some parts. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. 
There's never been a time he wasn't like Jesus. You see, man for 4,000 years, almost 5,000 years, was trying to figure out what God was like logically. And so they would try to get a view of God through a lens of being a slave and a servant to a master, and they would write things down. So God finally said, you keep getting me wrong. Matter of fact, by the time you get to the book of Jeremiah, 2,000 years after the, Torah, the, 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 the law was written, you get to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says, the scribes got it wrong. Jeremiah 7 is a rebuke of Moses. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, when your forefathers came out of Egypt, I, the Lord, never told them to offer up all these sacrifices and do all these oblations. It's like, well, wait a minute, what? Moses said God told him to do it. But then Jeremiah shows up and he says, there was some lies going on. They didn't get it completely right. And they were logically trying to figure out who God was through a polytheistic mindset of being raised with a multiplicity of gods. So God says, okay, you keep getting me wrong. I'm going to clear it all up. You want to logically know who I am? I'm going to send my logic, logos. In the beginning was the logos. The word. One of the descriptions of Jesus is logic. Logos means logic and reasoning. He said, I'm going to logically show you now who I really am, if you really want to know who I am. That's why on the Mount of Transfiguration, you had Moses, you had Elijah, and you had Jesus. The law and the prophets and Jesus. And Peter walks up, and as a good little Jewish boy, he said, this is beautiful. Uh, well, well, now we got the law and the prophets. Let's just add Jesus to it, and let's call it Judaism 2.0. And immediately when he says, let's build three synagogues, or let's, let's worship the law, the prophets, and Jesus, the Father booms from heaven. This is my son, hear him. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is standing all by himself. And the Father said, this is who you pay attention to they spoke of him but they didn't get him right it shouldn't terrify us instead it should just let us know Jesus came to clear up all of our misconceptions Jesus is the point do you know how many churches don't have me back anymore because I say stuff like that you put Jesus at the center and folks freak out what Jesus has always been the point. He'll always be the point. He's not only the Lamb of God, he's, he's our heavenly husband. And he came to reveal the Father. I wonder, I wonder what would happen if the whole body of Christ began to really see God through the lens of a good father. The church has almost trained the world to have a wrong view of God. A natural disaster happens. A hurricane hits. And even the insurance companies believe our wrong theology. It was an act of God. Who says? God didn't have nothing to do with that. Because if God was in to bringing storms, Jesus would have never rebuked one. He would have welcomed it. Thank you, Daddy. Thank you for sending this typhoon. Instead, he's rebuking winds and waves and storms. You see, we, we have all these wrong conceptions because rather than seeing God through the lens of Abba Father I'm convinced with everything in me over the next few decades there's going to be a revelation of the Father that hits the church that's going to shake us to our core because we're going to finally begin to see who God is really like and his heart has always been for humanity he's never been against us 
He's always been for us. Even the idea of a wrathful God, even the idea of wrath, I'm going to talk about it a little bit tonight. You're not going to miss tonight, I promise you. I believe it's going to set you free in some areas. The, the Greek word for wrath is orge. It's where we get the word orgasm from. It deals with intense passion because of love. The idea of wrathful God being this angry, ticked-off deity. When my son was five years old, he was playing in our driveway, and he kicked a ball, and it went out into the street, and I was in the garage, and I saw him running towards the street to get the ball, and I saw a car coming. I came running out of the garage. Don't do that! He thought it was my wrath, but it was my intense love and passion for my son. It came across as wrath, but it had nothing to do with wrath. It was based on my love for him. See, how we view everything about God has everything to do with who we really see God as. And if I don't see him as father, God revealed himself in Genesis to mankind as Hashem Elohim. The deceiver deceived man into believing God wasn't their father and they weren't sons. And so for thousands of years, men lived as slaves. Jesus showed up and he came to restore back again who the father really was. He revealed him and showed him so that we would be free from the fear of death. That we would no longer be slaves, but we would be sons that have come to a place of honor, value, worth, and approval. That's the heart of the father. I want to encourage every, every single one of you. Regardless of what you have been taught about God, and a lot of us have been taught a lot of different stuff, I'm telling you, he's kinder than you ever thought. I tell people all the time, I don't believe I'm ever going to get to heaven and God say to me, you know what, you just preached me as way too good. I'm upset with you. I don't believe God's ever going to say, you know what, you love too much. Because I have people tell me, you're just one of them greasy, gray, sloppy, agape, just love preachers. Thank you. Absolutely am. Absolutely am. Why? Because I'm here to remove fear from people. Terror. The church I was raised in, I was terrified most of my life. I was terrified of missing the rapture, terrified of going to hell. Everything was terror and fear. And I never really knew how to receive God's love, and I never knew how to give God's love because I was always afraid. This good father that's being revealed to us in this day and hour is going to rock us to our core because the world is not crying for religion. They're crying, Abba, Father. Bow your heads a moment, would you? Father, I thank you today. I thank you that you are a better father than we ever dreamed. That you are exceedingly abundantly above or beyond better than we ever even imagined. Jesus, thank you for clearing up our misconceptions. Thank you for revealing the Father to us. That's what you, you came for. You came to constantly point us back to your Father. Lord, I ask that you remove lies and wrong teaching and misconceptions about who you really are and just seal in our hearts and minds this amazing view of this Hashem Elohim that you are you are a father creator and you love your creation 
You're crazy about us. You're crazy in love with us. Even in all of our mess, that's why the story of the prodigal is not about the sons. It's about the father. That your heart is always there for us, even when we're in the pig pen. You're thinking about us. You're preparing us to come home. Prodigals come home in the father's house. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Now do something with me. Would you put your hand on your heart a moment? I want you to just pray something with me. I believe it's important because I believe God in this day is shifting our mindset about who God is. He's nothing. The God I know today is nothing like the God I was raised with, even though he's never changed. My perception of him has. How I view him today is very different than how I viewed him 10 years ago. It, matter of fact, it keeps getting gooder and gooder keeps getting better and better. Now pray this with me. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you that you are my father, that you're better than I ever thought, better than I ever imagined. Remove from me any lies, wrong teaching, and fear that I've had about you. Flood my heart. Flood my mind. As a son who knows I'm a son, with your amazing goodness. Let it transform me and flow through me so that my heart is to be my brother's keeper and to share the love of my Father everywhere I go and everything I do. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. I, I want to encourage you with one last thing. Sometimes the reason we have a hard time seeing God as Father is because of how we were raised. Maybe our natural Father wasn't there, or our natural Father was someone we were terrified of. That's why a lot of people are good with Jesus. I've called it for years a Doobie Brothers mentality. Jesus is just all right with me. People love Jesus, but they're not sure about his dad because he seems a little terrifying. I'm here to tell you he's actually not. He's exactly like Jesus. He's just like Jesus said he was. And he's not going to kick you to the curb because Jesus wouldn't. And daddy's not in heaven as a judge with lightning bolts ready to strike you down because he's given all judgment to Jesus. And when you study a little further, about three chapters later, Jesus also said, and I judge no man. So you can think about that one sometime later. That's, that's how good he actually really is. I want to I encourage you in this season. I want to encourage those that may watch this. Some of you maybe uh, at one time were showing up here weekly and you're stalking still on, on, on social media and everything else. You know, listen, it, listen, if you left because of this last year, come back home. You, you know you're not.